Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Since the beginning of time, Humanity has been gathering around tables to eat, to drink, and to tell stories. See, the table, no matter where it is or when it is, it transcends time and place. It transcends culture and language because the table, whether we realize it or not, is an indispensable part of human life. I love the way that Shauna Nyquist describes it in her book, Bread and Wine, A Love Letter to Life Around the Table. Here's what she says. We don't come to the table to fight or to defend. We don't come to prove or to conquer, to draw lines in the sand or to stir up trouble. We come to the table because our hunger brings us there. We come with a need, with fragility, with an admission of our humanity. The table is the great equalizer the level playing field many of us have been looking everywhere for. The table is the place where the doing stops, the trying stops, the masks are removed, and we allow ourselves to be nourished like children. We allow someone else to meet our need. In a world that prides people on not having needs, on going longer and faster, on going without, on powering through, the table is a place of safety and rest and humanity where we are allowed to be as fragile as we feel. I love that. See, not only is the table a central part of human life, it's actually a central part of the biblical story. In fact, the most popular biblical metaphor used to describe God's family and God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is people gathered around a table. Rachel Held Evans captured this truth so perfectly when she wrote, this is what God's kingdom is like, a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry and because they said yes, and there's always room for more. Y'all, this is why here at Restore, here at our church, our vision is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. A place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. If you've been to one of our Sunday gatherings when we've done communion in person around big banquet tables, you've seen kind of how we put this into practice. Just like the video we play every week says, no matter your age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, background, or lifestyle, and it seems appropriate now to add, no matter your physical location, you have a seat at this table, at Jesus's table, with your name on it, if you want it. Why am I talking to you about tables this morning? Well, because today is the last week of our New Normal series, And this has been a look at how um, the identity and the practices of the very first church can ground us, the the modern day church, during this time of pandemic. Through 2,000 years, y'all, of wars and exiles, famines, persecutions, plagues, and pandemics like today, regardless of where they were or what was happening around them, 
the core identity and the core practices of the church have remained the same. From the first church in the first century to our church in the 21st century, the church has always been meant to be this radically inclusive family that centered itself around four practices listed in Acts 2.42. It says they devoted themselves, this is the first church, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So far in this series, we've talked about prayer, fellowship, and the apostles' teaching. So today, we wrap up the series by talking about the practice of breaking bread. This phrase, breaking bread, is a reference to the final Passover meal between Jesus and his disciples. You see, on that night, which we now call the Last Supper, Jesus changed the Passover meal forever. Now, you got to remember, Passover, it was a big deal in the Jewish world. Every year, Passover's arrival was announced by silver trumpets blown from the top of the Temple Mount that could be heard all over the city of Jerusalem. Because Passover, it not only looked backward to the time when God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt, it also looked forward to the coming of the Savior who would free God's people from slavery to sin. And at that time, As Jesus gathered around the table with his disciples that night before he was betrayed, unbeknownst to most of the world, the Savior, that is Jesus Christ, was already with them. As Luke's account of Jesus' life says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus had eagerly desired to eat that Passover because he knew that that one would change everything. The Savior that had been anticipated for thousands of years was was finally there, and he was ready to set his people free. The Passover meal always consisted of the, the same bread, the same wine, and the same rituals. The people of God had been celebrating their freedom from Egypt the same way for thousands of years, but not on this night. On this night, Jesus would change everything. Back to Luke's account. It says, And he, that is Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, bread and wine, they were featured prominently in all Passover meals. The bread symbolized God's daily provision for his people as they wandered through the desert after being freed from Egypt, and the wine represented the joy of finding the promised land. But around the table on that night, Jesus changes those elements. He says that the bread represents his body and that the wine represents his blood. He doesn't say, remember the Passover. He doesn't say, remember how God freed you from slavery in Egypt. He says, remember me. The meal is forever changed. It's no longer about God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. It's now about God rescuing his people from slavery to sin, the whole world from slavery to sin. That's why Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant. When he says these words, the disciples' minds around the table that night would have immediately gone to Jeremiah 31, where God told them that a new covenant was coming. Here's what it says. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. 
The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. This new communion represents the beginning of this new covenant. The wine is the blood of Jesus that washes every sin away. The bread is the body of Jesus that gives life to everyone who receives it. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the climax of the biblical story. But while it certainly is that, it certainly is the climax, it isn't the whole biblical story. And I think that the whole story is worth telling today. So with the rest of our time together, I'm going to tell this story. Then after the story ends, we will celebrate communion together. Because like I said earlier, Humanity has been gathering around tables to eat, to drink, and to share stories since the beginning of time. So right now, no matter where you find yourself watching or listening to this, I want to invite you to gather around this table to eat and to drink and to hear God's great story and our place in it. Because you see, most religions... They tell you how to get to God. Christianity tells you how God came to us. Our story begins like that, with creation. God forming this formless, dark world into something perfect and beautiful. He called it Eden. It was very, very good. He created it, and then he created us in it because he had this deep desire to be in deep relationship with us. And this was different. The creation story told by the people of God was different from every other creation story ever told. You see, those other creation stories, they talked about gods who who fought over who was in control. But our creation story tells about a God who just speaks and things are made. He is an ultimate control. Other stories tell about how the gods created humanity, not as image bearers, but to do their slavery work, to feed them when they were hungry, to give them drink when they were thirsty, to perform lewd acts in front of them for their entertainment, to be disposed of without thought or remorse. But our story, our God is different. It tells of a God who creates humanity in his image, in his likeness, with divinity in us through him. Doesn't call us slaves, instead he calls us partners, sent here to be his representatives, to to work the land alongside of him. It's beautiful, it's good. It's filled with this beautiful thing the Hebrew people called shalom, perfect peace, abundance, in everything and in between everything. This was Eden. This was God's design for creation. But then something happened. Adam and Eve, the first humans and the representatives of all humanity, made a choice. And they made a choice to search for the illusion of fulfillment apart from God. 
They turn their backs on him and they go their own way. And when they do that, they usher in evil and sin and all of their effects into God's perfect world and things break. That's why we say our world is broken because it literally has been broken. From there, the humanity left descends into constant struggle and violence. Cain rises up against his brother Abel and kills him. Cain is then banished, but Cain has ancestors that are worse and worse and worse after him. A guy named Lamech who is so violent and so vile that he actually makes songs about how bad he is and he sings them everywhere he goes. This spiral of violence continues down and down until we come to a city called Babel. Babel is this kind of penultimate place that was real but also representative of all of the penultimate evil places in the history of the world, Babylon and the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is where humanity got together searching for the illusion of fulfillment apart from God and they build this tower into the heavens saying that we will stay together, we will unite our power and we will become like God, more powerful than God. We won't need him because we have so much in us. And so in that moment, God confuses their languages, scatters them all over the world. And God decides that in order to bring back the shalom that he desired from the very beginning. He is going to choose a people, choose a family. And he is going to restore his relationship with that family so that he can begin restoring his relationship through them with all the families of the world. Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 tell the story of God and a man named Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham, a covenant like we just talked about earlier. But the beauty of this covenant God makes with Abraham, usually covenants have two sides. They come into agreement with each other. God actually makes the covenant with Abraham as Abraham sleeps. God says, this is a covenant between us, but even though I know that you are not going to fulfill your side of it, you are going to fall short, I will never not fulfill my side of it. And God is faithful to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, and then to Joseph. Joseph, you may have heard of him. He had a a bunch of brothers, right? The 12 uh, guys who ended up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph was the favorite of his dad. He got something that they called the, the coat of many colors. And they were jealous. They were frustrated. And so they beat him up. They stole his coat. They rubbed blood all over it from a bear that they'd killed. And they sold him into slavery in Egypt and told his family that he had died. Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt quickly with God's favor, rises to the right hand of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And then a famine takes over the whole land. But because Joseph has listened to God and was faithful, he allowed Egypt to have the food saved up that they'd need for the famine. And so Jacob, Joseph's dad, his old family, his brothers, they are hungry, looking for food. And so they hear that there's food in Egypt and they travel and there's this beautiful picture as Jacob and his family come on to the property of Egypt, to the, to the palace and, and who but Joseph walks out to meet them. And they fall on their faces and they say, we're sorry, we messed up. Joseph says, what God intended for evil, or excuse me, what you intended for evil God is using for good. And they're welcomed in to Egypt and it's this beautiful time. It's the end of Genesis. But by the beginning of the next book, Exodus, 
400 years have gone by and the Pharaohs no longer remember Joseph and the people of Israel are frustrating them and so they're in bondage, they're in slavery. They've turned their backs on God. But the people of Israel, the family that God chose to uh, restore his relationship with so that he could begin restoring his relationship with the rest of the world, they cry out to God. They need help. God hears their cry. He frees them from slavery in Egypt and they leave to go toward the promised land. And this is the cycle repeated throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God continuing to be faithful to his covenant even when humanity is not. Continuing to make new covenants with humanity even as they continue to break them. This is God pursuing his restoration, shalom with humanity. The whole time, sending prophets that speak for God to call people back to him to say, don't you remember, I set you out as this family so you would be a beacon of light to the entire world so that I could share my grace and hope and love with all of humanity, but you just keep hoarding it for yourselves. You keep trying to, to search for illusion, the illusion of fulfillment apart from me. It's not working. So there's this cycle turning their backs on God, crying out for help, turning their backs on God, crying out for help. But even as humanity's faithfulness goes in and out, God's never does. He is faithful the entire time. And as these prophets that he sends call his people back to him, there is one prophet that comes at the very end. His name is Malachi. And in Malachi's prophecy, which Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament, in the last verses of the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi predicts the coming of a Savior. He says, we have messed this up so often, so many times, but God is still faithful. And there's a Savior coming so the Old Testament comes to a close and there's 400 years of silence in between the Old and New Testament called the intertestamental period. The words of Malachi ringing in the ears of God's people over those 400 years, a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming. And the New Testament opens up and the Savior comes on the scene. His name is Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary announced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes onto the scene and begins living the most incredible life that's ever been lived. A perfect life. A life defined by bringing back shalom, bringing back peace and abundance and goodness to everyone he encountered, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, giving sight to the blind, recognizing the marginalized, eating with people who no one else wanted to eat with, forgiving sins and caring for people. And he did that for about 30-ish years. And then at the end, the religious leaders of the time, the uh, Jewish religious leaders in conjunction with the Roman government who was in charge decided that, that this Jesus guy was just, he was gaining too big of a following. He was becoming too powerful. He was disrupting these systems of oppression that were keeping the religious leaders and the Roman government in power so they conspired together to illegally arrest him, unjustly try him, and then murder him on a cross. But what they didn't know is that God was in control the whole time. And as Jesus is up on the cross, he invites evil 
to do its worst to him. All the sin, all the evil, all the brokenness in all the world, he invites it upon himself. He invites it to use its greatest weapon against him, with his, which is death. And Jesus dies up there on the cross as evil exhausts itself on him. And it looks like all is lost as Jesus is laid in a tomb. But you and I know the story that three days later, he comes back to life. He overcomes the worst that evil and sin had to offer. He overcomes death with life. And then he returns to his closest friends, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and he announces, I am alive. I have overcome evil and sin and death, and now you can too. I am sending you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, that will live in you and empower you to be my witnesses, to tell the good news about me to the entire world. You see, his plan never changed. From the very beginning, God was always wanting to be in deep relationship with his creation. And so as he restores relationships with his creation, he is sending us out, whether it was the people of Israel in the Old Testament or this thing that came to be called the church in the New Testament to share his grace and his hope and his love with all people. And that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit comes down in the book of Acts chapter two, this chapter that we've been looking at for five straight weeks in this series, and the church is born. This radically inclusive family that literally caused the Roman government, the leaders of the area at the time to look at them and say, how are all of these people coming together? Slaves and free women and men, different races and ethnicities, they're all coming together and they're not just liking each other, they're actually treating each other as equals, as family. They were a beacon of light in this hurting, broken world. That's what the church was. That's what the church has always been designed to be. This is who we are. This is who we are designed to be. Bringers of the hope and love and grace of Jesus with us wherever we go. Proclaimers of the good news of Christ. Enablers of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Little pieces of Eden, shalom, peace, abundance, and perfection. Bringing those things, not because of us, but because of the spirit within us wherever we go. Bringing life and hope to a world that is hurting and broken. That's where we are right now in the story. This is our place in the story. But the story isn't over, you see, someday, Jesus is returning again. We don't know how or when or where, but he's coming back and he's coming back to finish his work of restoration and create a new Eden that he calls the new heaven and new earth, this beautifully joined space where where God's place and our place completely overlap. And like Eden, we are one in unity and intimacy with God again. It's a beautiful place where the Bible says there are no tears, no sin, no death, just God's perfect shalom, his very good world. We look forward to that day, look forward to the end of the story. So why share that? Why share the story of God and talk about our place in it this morning? Why around this table? 
because this is our heritage. This practice has been handed down to us. We, the church, have been coming together and sharing this story for thousands of years. Every time we gather around the communion table, we look backward to remember the story so far, and we look forward to the promise of the story's perfect ending. This was true when the first church broke bread, and it's been true for billions of Christians for thousands of years since then. Different tables, but same story. This morning, we're breaking bread in a new way, online. Instead of sharing one table, we all have our own makeshift tables, and we're sharing one digital space. But the fact that it's different shouldn't scare us. Because communion, breaking bread, has been celebrated in a myriad of ways over the centuries. I actually brought some examples with me today. You have kind of the traditional, right, the bread and the big cup. Some churches, everybody lines up and they walk to the front, right? And there's a little piece of bread that you grab and you tear off the loaf and then you drink out of the same cup and they turn it and they wipe it and they turn it and they wipe it and everybody eats and drinks all together. Some places, you tear off a piece of bread and you actually dip it in the wine and eat it right there. If you grew up in more evangelical traditions, you actually might be more used to something like this. This is the tray that is often passed around with the little cups inside of it, right? In these little cups, you have usually grape juice, depending on where you're from. And then under it, I don't know if you know this, but there's a second tray, and that tray is where the little crackers go. And these are passed usually by the ushers or the deacons all through the lines, and you take your cup, and you take your cracker, and you wait until it is your turn to partake. Sometimes church gathering wasn't possible. Sometimes people had to stay at home, like today. So this is something that is truly, truly amazing. This is a really old little case that was actually used to take communion to people who could not attend a church gathering. It opens up just like this. In it, you have the little vial that you would keep the wine in. And then right here, you have the little glass communion cups that you would pour the wine in. Then this thing actually lifts up and right in here out comes this little holder of the bread. Pops open. And so if you were sick or you were incapacitated, you couldn't come to a church gathering, they brought communion to your house. This actually belonged to a pastor a really long time ago who used this to go to people's houses who couldn't leave. And then you also have the wine in regular cups as people sit around smaller tables and they share meals. They break bread like the first church. This is what they did. All different ways of communion. Different ways, different tables, same story. Did you know that every time a new way to celebrate communion has come along, people have said it won't work? It's not honoring to God. It's not the way we've always done it. It's not right. God won't bless it. People have been saying that like crazy over the last couple of months as people have started to do communion like this online. 
And I get it. Communion online is new. It's different. Most of us have only celebrated communion this way one other time. That was about a month ago on Good Friday. But listen, to say that doing communion this way online isn't right or doesn't work, I just find to be ridiculous. I find it offensive. I think that because the second reason we come together and we share this story is because powerful things happen when we do. It doesn't matter if it's with bread and wine, little crackers and grape juice in person or online. Jesus shows up in amazing ways. How dare we restrict what God can and can't do and where he can and can't do it. When we come together and we share his story, he shows up. Powerful things happen. I know this because like I said a second ago, Good Friday was the first time most of us celebrated communion online. I got so many messages from you all, from our church family, telling me what a powerful time it was together, but one of them was my favorite. It was from Nick and Laura Ramos. And they said that their little boy, Bear, decided to place his faith in Jesus for the first time during communion that night. He heard the story, he believed it, and he placed his faith in Jesus, and then he took communion with his family at home as others took it together online. You know what little Bear used to take communion that night? Cheez-Its and a juice box. Cheez-Its and a juice box. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus doesn't show up for communion online. People have always tried to restrict Jesus's table. They argue that certain types of elements won't work or, or that communion only counts in certain places or that they try to police those who can and can't come to the table. I mean, the religious leaders in the first century, they tried to restrict Jesus himself when he would eat with people that they deemed unworthy. This is not new. It is not novel but it's never, ever worked. It didn't work then, and it's not going to work now because like we always say, this isn't our party. So we don't get to decide where it's held or what is served. It isn't our table, so we don't get to decide who gets a seat. This is Jesus's table. It is his party, and he has made the invitation clear. Anyone who wants a seat can have one. Anyone who will come can partake. No matter if you can't leave your home or you can, no matter if you're eating bread and drinking wine or you like bear, have Cheez-Its and a juice box, he is there and he is working. Don't ever, ever let someone tell you that he can't work because he is, he is. We just keep coming together. We keep telling the story and making sure everyone who wants a seat has one. That's our job. You have a place at Jesus' table. Your table counts. We are a church where anyone has a seat at the table and where everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus We are that way because that's who the first church was. 
And we are that way because we are convinced that it is who God has always designed the church to be. This is a picture of the great banquet table. When we come back together, Jesus comes home again to earth to finish his work of restoration. This table, your table at home, is just a picture of what that will look like. God's kingdom fully come on earth as it is in heaven. And the new heaven and the new earth around great big banquet tables with incredible wine and amazing food, we will share in this together. Pastor and author Beth Moore looks forward to this day with these words. She says, one day, all of us in Christ will sit around an enormous table, exquisitely set with a feast of rich foods prepared in divine kitchens. No one will be left out. No one will be alone. No one will be nameless. No one unknown. No one with nowhere to go. We will finally be home. As we sit Around our tables today, we look back on the table that Jesus sat around, the, around with the disciples with that last supper night, and we look forward to that table that Beth just talked about, that table, that great banquet table in the new heaven and new earth. We live in between these two tables, and I know that it's weird right now. I know not being able to, to share a table in person with all of our church family is hard. So that's why for communion today, we're gonna do something really, really special. Wherever you are, whenever this is, however you are doing communion, maybe it's Cheez-Its and a juice box, maybe it's bread and wine, I don't care. I wanna ask you to do this. I wanna ask you to take a picture of your communion setup before we take communion together. Take a picture of it. And then I want you to post it on your social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and then I want you to tag our church, at RestoreATX. Take the picture, post it, and tag us because when we all come back together, when it's safe to gather in person again, we are going to take communion around big banquet tables in person like we've done before in beautiful and glorious ways, and we are going to take those pictures that you send in today, and we're gonna put them all over the screen as we do it, and we are going to remember we're gonna to remember today. Remember what God is doing in our midst. Remember communion in the time of coronavirus. And we're going to look forward to that table in the future. When Jesus comes again, when he reunites all things to himself, restores all relationships, and we sit around it all together. So take that picture, put it online, tag us, and we're going to have them all over the screen when we gather together again. Now that you've done that, I want to take communion together. Here's what Jesus said. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
which is poured out for you. You may drink now. I'm going to pray a special communion benediction. And then we are going to worship through song together some more. This is actually from Shane Claiborne's Common Prayer book. Would you pray with me? So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the incredible work that you have done, you are doing, and you will continue to do around tables just like this as we faithfully come together to eat and to drink and to share your story. Move among us, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.